Hello, my name is Thomas and welcome to this week's episode of British Culture, Albion Never Dies. Today I'm talking about Lawrence of Arabia. But before I get into all that, I'd just like to say a very special thank you to the five people who've subscribed to my newsletter in the last week or so. And I hope you enjoyed it. I released my newsletter uh, just a few days ago and then had a follow-up one for the 5th of November. And I've been sending out some postcards to just a couple of people randomly selected from the list. I hope you're... I hope you're going to enjoy them because I don't think they've arrived yet. Uh, but of course you'll know who you are because I asked you for your address. Of course in the newsletter is a summary of what I've been doing over the last month in terms of this podcast, appearing on other podcasts, hosting for example the Emerald series podcast. Emerald Publishing is the company I work for and they've asked me to run some of their podcasts on challenging topics like female terrorists and suicide and self-harm, some very serious topics that, uh, that my company uh, researches as part of all our journals and books. It's an academic uh, publishers and occasionally appear on something fun like uh, what, from Tailors of Love in which we discuss the latest developments in clothing, film clothing especially, and James Bond clothing if we can. But today is all about Lawrence of Arabia. I asked my friends on Instagram, have you seen it? And 72% said yes, 28% said no, but when I, I fished for more details, quite a few people were saying that they saw it a long time ago, and I myself, I don't think I've seen it for, I think, 20 years. I've only seen it once. Um, it is a great long film. It is a great film, but it's a long film. And I saw it on a really, really old uh, VHS tape um, and I told this uh, to, to Alex Lamas uh, who has started his YouTube channel which is I think called Never Say No to Adventure and he he uh, told me that if, you, if I've only seen the VHS copy it's like watching Star Wars through a keyhole, I need to see it on a big screen so at some point I'm going to have to set some time aside and watch it, I wasn't able to get round to it before this podcast I did have a quick read through of Lawrence's book the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, which I've read before, and I'll get into some of that. But first, I just thought I'd uh, shed some light into why I'm doing this topic. Well, of course, I started out with my season of Michael Caine, again with uh, from Taylor's of Love, um, him covering some of the more contemporary movies, and myself, I was really interested in some of the historically set movies, like uh, like Zulu the man who would be king, and I got involved with this Facebook group, the Gentleman Society for the Appreciation of the British Empire, and so I asked the gentleman, I hope you don't mind if I ask you all for suggestions for fun and interesting areas to cover. I'll have a Zulu episode next, then the man who would be king after that, what do you suggest? And I got loads of really, really interesting suggestions, so I thought, first of all, I'd just say a thank you to Mr. Price, who said, what if, if Nelson had failed at Trafalgar and the French fleet destroyed British naval dockyards, Portsmouth, Chatham, Plymouth, etc., as a consequence, uh, would British hegemony have prevailed? Um, and of course, I took his suggestion, because I did the Trafalgar Night episode, and that was uh, especially redone. I did one last year, but I redid this episode and did focus on the what if. First of all, going into who was Nelson and what was the Battle of Trafalgar and why was it significant for all those, um, especially living outside the UK, who might not previously be aware of its significance. Uh, but then I did touch on, on the what if, and that was really because of Mr. Price's uh, suggestion. I really want to read this one out because it's, 
it's really interesting to me. Um, a Mr. I hope I'm saying this right, McCaslin, um, suggested Thuggy. Um, for example, the, this group of people seen in the movie The Deceivers, based on the novel by John Masters, along with many other films like Hammer's The Stranglers of Bombay, a uh, good tie-in, not to mention the adventure classic Gunga Din with Cary Grant and Indiana Jones The Temple of Doom. I just thought that was a really good series of suggestions. The reason I didn't go into it is because I haven't seen these movies. Uh, I've seen Indiana Jones and The Temple of Doom, but I haven't watched Gunga Din and um, The Stranglers of Bombay and so on. Um, I think the fact that Cary Grant is in them, these are 50s films and, and even older. I just haven't seen them. Uh, I can see a few of them are on YouTube, the whole film to see. Uh, so that's something I might get into, do a bit of research. Um, and one person did just say, uh, oh, Mr. Price, a 19th century British hedge money, and, uh, and what we did with it. Again, that's just such a vast topic. It's one I want to step back, think about, and I'm just letting you know these topics, because these are things that might come in the future, especially if I get normal messages about them. I do like to do requests. Uh, Mr. McCaslin again suggested... George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman series of novels, and I like that idea. Um, I told him that's something I've been wanting to get hold of for a long time, but I never had the chance. I've been working abroad for a long time, and often with jobs that didn't leave me with a great deal of free time. Um, so I asked him, should I just buy the first novel and work forth from there? Doesn't it matter? Um, you know, some series you can read out of order, some you can't. And he explained there are two ways to approach it. You can read them in publication order or read them in the chronological order of the event Flashman is embroiled in. I didn't realise what a huge series it is actually, but he suggested this book uh, website www.bookseriesinorder.com forward slash flashman dash papers. Uh, so that's something I'm hoping to get into that's something that won't come for a long time because of course i need to read the books look into the events uh but that's something on my long range scanner because i really like that suggestion and of course i replied in the group but i want to say it here i really like that one and again he continued the indian mutiny also known as the sepoy rebellion or the first war of indian independence individual episodes dealing with uh Kampur, Lucknow, the siege of delhi i like these um not many films are set during the mutiny, but there's an Indian film called The Chess Players, which is a, a classic. It's 1977, I believe. And Mr. McCaslin also suggested The Empire Exhibition of 1938. So I just thought I'd read these out again. These could be coming. Uh, and I really like I really like the idea of them. Again, another gentleman suggested The Indian Mutiny, but also um, this gentleman is called Mr. Baum. Uh, he suggested The Opium Wars. I really like that suggestion because, of course, I've lived in southern China um, and I've been to some of the kind of the early British concessions and French concessions. Uh, he suggested the settlement of Australia and New Zealand. That's something I'd like to do, and I know I do have some listeners in Australia and New Zealand. Perhaps time for you to send me a message and hop on board. Uh, Northwest Frontier in India. I touched on this a little bit with the uh, the great game, the man who would be king. There's more. There's more to do there. The campaign against the slave trade. Oh, I'd love to do that. But what is it? The West Africa Squadron. Um, I think there's a lot to look into. Again, I feel those are topics where I need to. I need to do a bit more reading. But I like this. People are giving me really good ideas of stuff for me to look at personally and what I find interesting from there, or what I feel confident to talk about. Uh, not always the same thing. I'll be. Uh, I'll be using these later. And again, he further suggests the Irish potato famine, raffles in Singapore, the role of the Royal Society in the Empire, and African exploration. And of course, the old Indian army. I think that's a really interesting topic. Of course, in um, the book, um, Murder on the Orient Express, there is an old Indian army officer. Um, he was, of course, British, serving in the Indian army. 
Um, and I think it's a really interesting fact that when they readapted it, the very, very recent one um, with Kenneth Branagh, they kind of wrote that role out because uh, it's obviously going to be far too confusing for modern audiences to know that there was a British army and there was a British Indian army. Um, and that character was completely gotten rid of, of course, in the Peter Eustonov version. That character was played by Sean Connery. And it's, <laughs> it's a, great, a great little role for him. Um, and a very minor role for Sean Connery. Anyway... I responded in the group and I said lots of great ideas there, thank you, uh, but rarely these are staying, staying with me. Um, and Mr. Singleton also messaged and said, I was a Navy captain stationed at the US Embassy in Nairobi for a year, uh, and fairly recently, uh, 16 to 2017. Uh, every week I attended the British Army training unit in Kenya, Batuk's staff meeting, coordinating activities with US forces in Djibouti and Somalia. The Batuk was a, a Colonel Leakey, a cousin of the world-famous anthropologist. With a British Army liaison, myself and several fellows, US senior officers went north and toured the Kenyan Army Infantry School and a large UK um, training area. How about a discussion on Kenya, the Mau Mau uprising, and continued UK presence in Kenya, which is still the British Army's largest training area? And somebody else joined in. You could include how Britain, after the countries became independent, restored the democracies in Uganda, Tanganyika, and Kenya. Wow. Again, I, I said that's a fascinating suggestion. I said it there, and I'm saying it again. These are really interesting topics, and again, ones for the future. They go a little bit outside what I was hoping to do with this, this trilogy, looking at the Unbound again, just originally inspired by, well, classic movies. But these are really interesting topics, and I'd love to, love to look more into them. And Mr. Sparks said, uh, take a look at public schools and how they fed the empire with its leadership cadre. And uh, Mr. Baum again said, uh, there are people, T.E. Lawrence, well, of course, the, this uh, is all about that, David Livingston, so-called Chinese Gordon, um, again, interesting to me because I lived in the area where he operated, uh, Florence Nightingale, Clive, Charles Napier, William Bly, Gandhi, uh, William Jardine, James Cook, Francis Drake, William Adams and Gertrude Bell. They are all fantastic suggestions but the one that really attracted the most attention was Lawrence of Arabia again this was overwhelmingly what people were asking for and uh, first rule of mass media give the people what they want so I didn't know where to start so I asked the experts again in this in this group uh, the gentleman society for the appreciation of the British Empire I asked the question what fact about Lawrence of Arabia do you wish more people would know and within a week over 150 comments wow now just say something about uh, how how I'm approaching this I haven't seen the film for a long time a good chunk of listeners haven't seen this film ever many who have seen it haven't seen it for a long time so maybe a funny thing to say but I'm not going to go into deep into spoilers I've I've looked into this and I and I want I want it to be good to listen to this podcast and then watch the film, or watch the film and listen to the podcast either way. But I'll happily talk about the first five minutes of the film, because my recollection, it's a long time, but my recollection is that it starts off with a group of gentlemen talking about T.E. Lawrence at his funeral, all of whom seeing him from very, very different perspectives, having very different ideas about who he was and what he was. Um, again, I believe that's the opening of the movie, and if that's true, then it's remarkable how much these 150 comments have aped the movie. Is is life imitating art, or was that simply how it was? I do not know. But people have all kinds of views of him. And again, for those who... Honestly, there are people who, who've never heard of him, 
uh, especially again living outside the UK. This is an international uh, podcast. This has been listened to by people in over a hundred countries. So there are those who will never ever have heard of him, but I think the opinions of him before we get to the facts is actually an interesting way to go. And Mr. Jordan said his death, which was in a motorcycle accident, again, opening of the film, his death led to the first serious efforts to protect motorcyclists in accidents started by the doctor that treated him. Lawrence died of head injuries. A decent helmet would have saved him. And someone said, oh yeah, I read that. That was a decent crash helmet would have saved him. Fractured skull, I presume. And uh, Mr. Jordan said, yeah, sad but true. A life full of danger in wartime then dies avoiding two cyclists for want of a crash helmet. I thought that was interesting. And Mr. Lavin chipped in. He wasn't from Arabia. <laughs> Wales, I think. But of course nobody would go to watch a film called Lawrence of Pontypaddy. And a few people... Quite a few people commenting, very funny, of course, the point about the title is the time he spent there in the DC did. Chinese Gordon was not from China. Um, <laughs> and Mr. Stratcham said he wrote The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And uh, Mr. McCaslin replied, which is a prose classic, uh, fantastic work of English literature, not surprising from a man who's a friend of George Bernard Shaw. And... Uh, Somebody else commented, I've read it a few times, found it heavy going at first, but it gives you an insight into what was happening at the time. I have read the book. I read it um, more than a decade ago, um, and I've, I've seen many of the things he describes in the book. Um, I went and taught uh, the most conservative Islamic clerics in Saudi Arabia for six months. Uh, I was teaching them English. Um, I've had somebody ask me, were they conservative before you met them? <laughs> but it was a very unusual job. Most people did this for six weeks, because uh, that's how long the courses were. But I ran a whole series of programs for them, and as I as I lived out there in, in Riyadh, um, not in a compound or anything like that, I was living in a, a fairly fairly interesting part of the city, not far from what's popularly known as Chop Chop Square. It's where the executions took place. Um, and as I said, I was dealing with the, these Islamic sheikhs, um, and I read the book. And I was deeply surprised, like uh, the gentleman in the group, I did find it very, very heavy going at first. The introduction is great, uh, the opening chapter is quite heavy, uh, but as it gets deeper and deeper into his time in the desert, I found a surprising amount of it, his observations on the Arabs, still very, very true. Of course, these things are incredibly subjective, but, well, my take was that he was incredibly perceptive and observational about the cultural differences. And as I say, I spent just six months in Saudi, um, but in a very unusual environment, and one that did give me an opportunity to see see whether it was true or not, and I believe a certain amount of it. I wouldn't take it as gospel necessarily, but I think a certain amount of it is very much still true. And a Mr. Baxter commented, I believe it was required reading for U.S. Army officers at one point. Um, so it has, a, it has a cultural value, and Quite a few people were kind of, I'm not going to read out all the comments or comment on all the comments, quite a few people were kind of discussing the military value of it, some praising it and some dismissing it. Um, and Mr. Powelson commented that Lawrence of Arabia was disgusted with the broken promises to the Hashemites of Jordan and Iraq. And uh, Mr. McVeigh said he's the father of the trouble we've had with much of the Arab world because he resolved tribal disputes and taught them guerrilla tactics. Um, and Mr. Lucas saying he was, he was well aware of the promises and lies the British government told, um, which, again, is a significant part of the book, even the opening. Um, but somebody else commenting, as part of diplomacy, the Arab tribal leaders lied about many things. It was a very effective way to deal with them. 
Um, and again, this is really interesting, these, these debates. Um, some, one person said it could be turned on its head too easily. There isn't a chance that this can be demonstrated. I'd say that his zealous belief was so overwhelmed to the Arabs of all types um, that his amount of such work, effort, and self-sacrifice, he cut through pre-existing assumptions of the time on both sides. And he's a personal example of valor, sacrifice, and duty lends him to such admiration today. They still held in high regards and travel about there. And then someone else said, oh, no, totally not true. Uh, the the Bedou have been using these tactics, and he didn't lead the Arabs, as many people suggest. He was also part of a team, not the most senior. Um, and someone said, if it was for centuries, where it's recorded, there's lots of arguments going back and front, the centuries of tribal warfare, caravan uh, raiding. Anyway, uh, Mr. Loftus uh, suggesting that Lawrence of Arabia's operational duties as a liaison officer over the years was collect deliberately, deliberately uh, vague. Um, and someone said, I'm fairly certain he was a commander of men at a difficult time in their history. I wasn't there, but that's my opinion. And someone else saying, go to the Arabs, they'll tell you differently. Um, there's many Arabs who've never heard of the man. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but there are also those with strong views. Uh, again, it's not one, it's not one singular group of people, is it? Anyway, one chap said, King Faisal led his army. He took advice from local liaison officers. I don't think anyone who takes the time to join and participate in the relevant group would do so if they don't know about the period. But I speak for myself. I would agree with most of your initial comments by saying that a liaison officer does not lead. I agree with you. He did, however, in 1917 particularly, do a lot of good in disrupting and debilitating Ottoman lines. Anyway, would a liaison officer ever lead? I think that's a, a very interesting question for... <laughs> experts of the region do write to me at uh, albionneverdies at gmail.com I've been replying to all my emails and uh, sometimes sending those postcards too anyway Mr. Uh, Jarmain, I think uh, again I'm sorry if I'm getting some of these names wrong um, I've come a cropper with some western names recently so I'm being cautious uh, Chinese names, great, great six years there, I did very well um, back to the west Oh, tripping up over so many. One chap said he's a scholar, not really a military leader. Um, and uh, a very interesting chap, Mr. Stone, uh, said you're thinking of Gertrude Bell, who divided the region. And Gertrude Bell, uh, we finally come to it, my recommended rabbit hole. Uh, Gertrude Bell attended the 1919 Peace Conference in Paris, involved in the 1921 Conference in Cairo with Winston Churchill, then Colonial Secretary, who helped establish the boundaries of Iraq. Gertrude Bell also helped bring Faisal I to power as Iraq's new king, and wanted to help preserve the country's heritage. So in 1922, uh, Gertrude Bell was named the Director of Antiquities by King Faisal, and she worked hard to keep important artefacts in Iraq. A remarkable woman in a very interesting point in history. So I'm going to say Gertrude Bell is my recommended rabbit hole. Anyway, a uh, uh, Masrakin, Mr. Masrakin, said uh, that Lawrence of Arabia was an agent provocateur meant to stir unrest and rebellion in order to achieve a bigger colonial agenda. Um, <laughs> I really like it. Mr. Hemphill. Mr. Hempel, thank you very much for your comment, and thank you for illustrating it with a picture. I really like it. Um, Mr. Hempel said he didn't pay for his bill at Baron's Hotel in Aleppo, and before the war he'd drawn many of the Crusader castles in Syria. I looked into this, and yeah, this, these books, I believe, were published after his death. It was really, really good to... This is a good little rabbit hole for me, actually. Um, he reckoned Crac de Chevalier Homs as uh, one of the most magnificent castles in the world. He's illustrated this with a picture of the castle, and yeah, this, this castle in Syria looks amazing. Absolutely amazing. Anyway, there's a lot more discussion um, 
over whether it was did he organize the Arab revolt, was he simply an advisor, um, facilitated rather than organized, and so on and so on. Um, one person saying that he had unique, almost unique linguistic skills, somebody else said, no, no, no quite a few officers had. Uh, you know, linguistic skills as a tradition of British officers learning Arabic while in the region. Um, okay, uh, Mr. Vanek said in World War I, uh, Lawrence of Arabia helped the Arabs wage guerrilla warfare on the Ottomans. He made promises to the Arabs that our government did not subsequently entirely keep. I feel that was the most succinct out of all of these. Um, I'll just include one more from Mr. Jones. Thank you, Mr. Jones. You said Lawrence of Arabia features in a kick ass. Sabaton song. <laughs> so if you love the band Sabaton, uh, that's a great song. Anyway, maybe one more, maybe one more. Uh, he was an immensely enigmatic and complex man. I think that's quite fair. Um, okay, two more, two more, because there's one more. He was the best of those desert-loving Englishmen. Great, great line from the film. But I've been going through people's opinions. Let's Let's perhaps have a look at the facts. What are what are the facts? What does T. E. Lawrence even stand for? Well, it stands for Thomas Edward Lawrence, and Thomas is a fantastic name. Um, although he preferred the initials T. E. Uh, he was born in August sixteenth, eighteen eighty-eight, in Tremadoc, uh, in Wales. Um, Died 1935, British archaeological scholar, military strategist and author, best known for his legendary war activities in the Middle East during the First World War, and for his account of those activities in his book, published in 1926, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I'm getting some of this information from Encyclopedia Britannica. I thought this one uh, was really interesting, just uh, taking a few choice snippets from the encyclopedia. Lawrence was the son of Sir Thomas Chapman and Sarah Madden, the governess of Sir Thomas's daughters at Westmeath, uh, and with whom he had escaped from both marriage and Ireland. As, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence, end quote, the couple had five sons, Thomas Edward was the second, drawing uh, what was outwardly a marriage with all the benefits of clergy. In 1896, the family settled in Oxford, where T.E., he preferred the initials to his names, attended the high school and Jesus College. Medieval uh, military architecture was his first interest, and he pursued it in its historical settings, studying crusader castles in France and, in 1909, in Syria and Palestine, and submitting a thesis on the subject that won him first-class honours in history in 1910. Ah, yes, it was posthumously published as Crusader Castles in 1936. Oh, so he's a difficult person to get to know, and even his name is a lie! <laughs> is he really Mr. Lawrence? Uh, the month the war began, the First World War, Lawrence became a civilian employee of the map department of the War Office in London charged with preparing a militarily useful map of the Sinai. By December 1914, he was a lieutenant in Cairo. Experts on Arab affairs, especially those who had travelled in the Turkish-held Arab lands, were rare, and he was assigned to intelligence, where he spent more than a year mostly interviewing prisoners, drawing maps, receiving and processing data from agents behind enemy lines, and producing a handbook on the Turkish army. Okay, he was not the only officer to become involved in the incipient Arab rising. From his own small corner of the Arabian Peninsula, he quickly became, especially by his own accounts, its brains, its organising force, uh, its liaison with Cairo, and its military technician. His small but irritating second front behind the Turkish lines was a hit and run guerrilla operation, focusing upon the mining of bridges and supply trains and the appearance of Arab units, first in one place and then another 
tying down enemy forces that otherwise would have been deployed elsewhere and keeping the Damascus to Medina railway largely inoperable. I find this really, really interesting. Of course, if you want to know more about him, you can read Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. As I said earlier, I found it really hard going at the beginning, but... But it is one of the, the great classics of English literature, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, um, post-Ostomous Trade Edition 1935, with subsequent editions since, remains one of the few 20th century works in English to make epical figures out of contemporaries, though overpopulated with adjectives and often straining for effects and, quote, art, end quote, it is nevertheless an action-packed narrative of Lawrence's campaigns in the desert with the Arabs. The book is replete with incident and spectacle, filled with rich character portrayals and intense introspection that bears the author's own complex mental and spiritual transformation, though inadmittedly, sorry, admittedly inexact and subjective, it combines the scope of heroic epic with the closeness of autobiography. I might add that uh, if you've seen the film, it's quite hard to read this, not in the voice of Peter O'Toole. I've referred to the book a couple of times, Maybe more than a couple of times. So I'll end by reading just the introduction to it. Just a selection from the introduction to it. It is a, an epic book. Lawrence of Arabia wrote, We lived many lives in those whirling campaigns, never sparing ourselves. Yet, when we achieved and the new world dawned, the old men came out again and took our victory to remake in the likeness of the former world they knew. Youth could win, but had not learned to keep, and was pitifully weak against age. We stammered that we had worked for a new heaven and a new earth, and they thanked us kindly and made their peace. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night, in the dusty recesses of their minds, wake in the day to find that it was vanity, but the dreamers of the day are dangerous men. They may act their dream with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. I meant to make a new nation, to restore a lost influence, to give twenty millions of Semites the foundations on which to build an inspired dream palace of their national thoughts. So high an aim called out the inherent nobility of their minds, and I made them play a generous part in events. But when we won, it was charged against me that the British petrol royalties in Mesopotamia were become dubious and French colonial policy ruined in the Levant. I am afraid that I hope so. We pay for these things too much in honour and in innocent lives. From the opening of the Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, not better known as Lawrence of Wales. Thank you very much to everybody who commented in that uh, Facebook group, people who made such interesting suggestions for what I should cover, and I feel, as so often, that I could spend so much more time on this. I could go back, watch the film, as uh, I think Alex Lammas suggested, do check out his YouTube channel, um, watch the film, super high HD, high definition, uh, listen to the soundtrack again, read the book, because there's a lot here. But I found it so interesting that when, when I asked the experts, there were so many different points of view. I hope I've done justice to, to all of them. And if I haven't, you know where to email me. And if you'd like to receive an email from me, well, obviously you can email me. You can also just subscribe. Uh, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. 
This is British Culture, Albion Never Dies, saying goodbye.